Shio friends, today is May 5th, 2022, and it is National MMIW Day of Awareness. In recognition of this day and to properly honor the many women and men that have gone missing or have been murdered, Maggie, Ash, and I decided to jump on a virtual meeting and break down why May 5th is the designated day. I will say that while these stories we cover are tragic, the stories we are covering today involve content that may not be suitable for everybody. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. So today is May 5th. It is the National MMIW Day of Awareness. And me, Maggie, and Ash are here for a surprise episode drop. We kind of want to talk to you guys a little bit about what MMIW Day is about, how it got started. Maggie, you know, when we talked about why it was May 5th. We didn't know why. And you were questioning why it was Cinco de Mayo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was a great point. So it kind of, you know, cascaded it to us wanting to break down today and why today is so important. Uh, We've been covering cases for the last six months. So today we're going to bring you two cases uh, that were the catalyst for this designated day and talk about all those chilling statistics that we often share to kind of really hammer down that we are, in fact, at epidemic levels. You guys can know, you know, we talk about statistics a lot, and sometimes I think it can get lost in the story. Uh, Maggie, you mentioned in the last episode that a lot of this information can be overwhelming. So I thought, you know, it was a good point for today that we kind of just really kind of focus on the statistics and why Bay Faith is important. So what I wanted to do was kind of talk to you guys about the MMIW handprint. I've had a few people ask me about what it means. Have you guys come across that? Yes. Whenever we did our uh, photo shoot, people were asking, what what does the handprint mean? What does it symbolize? So yeah, I've had a few questions from people in the community. Me too. And I've actually looked it up myself just because I wasn't entirely sure. So I think it's a something really good to explain to people. So the red handprint, if you, if you Google MMIW or you look up MMIW images, you'll most commonly see the color red and the red handprint on the face. I looked it up too, just to make sure that I'm given the most accurate information. And uh, nativehope.org did a really good explanation on this saying the red hand over the mouth stands for all the missing sisters whose voices are not heard. It stands for the silence of the media and law enforcement in the midst of this crisis. And it stands for the oppression and subjugation of Native women who are now rising up to say no more stolen sisters. Covering these stories, we are seeing that they don't have as big as a voice as non-Indigenous people, you know, because there are just so many stories and they get lost. And that's why we do what we do, to share their stories, to bring awareness to this, that we're not silenced. We can still be a voice for those that are missing or murdered. So, Ash, we um, we did the presentation yesterday. One of the slides that we included was around the lack of social media coverage. So this kind of goes hand in hand about what you're saying is it's really clear to us that a lot of these MMIW cases receive minimal media coverage. But there actually was a study by the Urban Indian Health Institute regarding the media coverage of MMIW cases. And it was reported that less than one-fifth of the total number of cases were covered more than once in the media. And the statistics basically go on to say that less than 
one-tenth recovered three times, less than 5% recovered less than five times. The most staggering statistic is that less than one-fifth of these cases were even covered one time in the news. Oh, wow. Gosh. You know, you know what this makes me think mm-hmm. of? Do you remember when we covered Jocelyn and Jade? Their local police's social media uh, had like oh more, it had more like missing dog flyers than it had about, you know, Jocelyn and Jade and people going missing. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah. That was coming from their police department. Yeah. And the color red, it's symbolic of going into battle. It's a really symbolic color for us. We talk about about our missing sisters whose voices are not heard. This is why we do this podcast. We're not the experts here. You know, we're not investigative journalists, but one thing that we do have experience and expertise in is being indigenous women. And so I think it's important that we're able to kind of share these stories from the indigenous perspective. Okay, so we're going to get into these two cases today just to kind of put in context about what May 5th Day of Awareness and how it started. So we're going to start the initial concept for the National Day of Awareness was created as a result of the community organizing of Melinda Limberhand on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Lame Deer, Montana. Now, Melinda's daughter, Hannah Harris, was 21 years old when she disappeared from Lame Deer, Montana on July 4th, 2013. Now, I googled it and Lame Deer is about 57 miles outside Hardin. And we've had a lot of cases come from this area and Hardin specifically, but Lame Deer is the tribal and government agency headquarters of the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation. Due to the inadequate response of the justice system, Melinda had faced a lot of roadblocks in reporting Hannah's disappearance, conducting searches and holding the justice system accountable. And she relied on family and friends in their efforts for justice for Hannah. She had to coordinate her own search for her daughter. This was already a place that had been plagued by countless Indigenous women and girls going missing or murdered. So Hannah was a single mother, and she had a 10-month-old son. In an article in Justice for Native Women, it stated that she was last seen drinking with some friends for the July 4th holiday. Her car was later found abandoned with two flat tires, and on July 8th, her body was found badly decomposed near the rodeo grounds on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. So when I was doing my research, it was explained to me that there was like like four day gap between uh, when she was found and when she went missing. The report said that it was a combination of the police station being short staffed and the holiday and because they weren't sure that Hannah was actually missing. And because of those, uh, the combination of those three things. Uh, They lost a lot of hours and manpower in finding her. When she was found, it was reported she was found with her pants down and her bra pulled up. It also stated that her remains were in such poor condition that an official cause of death has never been determined. Wow, that's, that's so sad. You know, what's terrible is that what started this movement really and, you know, gaining so much coverage is the same narrative of what we hear today in the cases that we research like nothing's changed their police departments are still underfunded communities are still forming their own search parties that people are still struggling to make sure that their loved ones are reported missing and have the attention that they need so it's just sad that this is like still exactly what we see today yeah and this happened in 2013 so this is what almost 10 years later and we're still dealing with the same issues In March of 2014, a man named Garrett Wada and his wife, Eugenia Rowland, 
were arrested in connection with Hannah's murder. Police had found clothing belonging to Hannah on the property of Wada's aunt. And on July 7th, 2013, Roland called the authorities and claimed that Wada had disclosed concealing Hannah's body to her. Roland said she had passed out from drinking on July 4th. And when she woke up, she awoke to Wada having sex with Hannah, who was screaming that she was being raped. She claimed she tried to help Hannah, but became upset and ended up hitting her instead. And she also disclosed that she and Wada beat Hannah to death, wrapped her in a bedsheet and dragged her outside. So this is a husband and wife who were her friends that they were just drinking with? It doesn't say. It just says that she disclosed this to a former sister-in-law that this is what happened. So I don't know. I don't know the circumstances of how Hannah ended up with Wada. The only thing I found was that the last surveillance footage spot found of her was at a convenience store and she had gotten into the car with Roland. So I'm not sure. Um, so Wada was charged with sexually assaulting Hannah in exchange for his testimony. Uh, the murder charge was dropped and he was sentenced for only being an accomplice and a rapist. And then Roland was sentenced to 22 years in prison for murder. So the district attorney had asked for the maximum sentence of 15 years for Wada noting the callousness of the crime. Apparently Wada helped the family in their search efforts, knowing full oh well God. that Hannah was dead. You know, that's so messed up. It's just like kind of sidebar, but all these cases where it's like intimate partner violence and the partner is involved, they always go on the news and they always ask for the loved one to come home. And typically, you know, they know exactly what happened. and know that she's not alive. That's so messed up. And it's sick. Sick with these people are part of the searches. So Wada, he was only, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his part in the crime. So that's such a short amount of time. Well, and then like, even if you only, if you get sentenced to 10 years, you can get parole before then. So he probably only served what, like five to seven? I don't know. I, and if that's the case, we got to do better. There should be no reason why someone who has the capability of doing these heinous acts should be just walking the street and going into the store and buying groceries. It's so sad that a lot of times in order for the family to have justice and a conclusion to what happened to their family member, it results in a plea deal. And that has to be heartbreaking, too, that in order to find out what happened to their family, that the person who did it doesn't get prosecuted to the full extent. And we hear a lot of these families dealing with these like short sentences where justice wasn't truly served. In 2017, Senators Steve Daines and John Tester from Montana introduced a resolution recognizing May 5th as a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. It was in response to the murder of Hannah Harris on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation and other abductions and killings of Native women across the U.S. Since 2017, actions on May 5th to honor MMIW at the local, regional, and national level continue to grow. So... Why was May 5th chosen as this day? Well, Hannah Harris was born on May 5th, 1992. She would have been 30 years old today. Coupled with the May 5th designation, when this resolution was first introduced in April 2016, it was on the same day that Royland Rides Horse was found left in the field to die. So Royland Rides Horse was a member of the Crow tribe and she was 28 years old when she was discovered by a rancher on April 17th, 2016. The rancher stopped his truck on Castle Rock Road on the Crow Indian Reservation when he spotted a person lying on the ground. She was badly beaten, frostbitten, and very severely burned. 
According to an article I found at Cinemaholic, Roiland was at a bar with her boyfriend when they got into an argument. Another girl named Angelica Whiteman agreed to give Roiland a ride home. She called another man uh, named Demarzio Sanchez for assistance. And her, Roiland, Demarzio, and his brother all took off in the car. Now, somewhere in the car, Angelica and Roiland got to an argument and it turned violent. It escalated into Angelica aggressively beating and trying to strangle Roiland. And then at some point, the card stopped and the fighting escalated outside. At this point, Demarzio allegedly offered to teach Angelica how to strangle a person properly. And in the process, strangled Roiland with a bandana. Roiland was then stripped naked and doused in gasoline and set on fire. She suffered from third degree burns that covered more than 45% of her body. Doctors informed her family that before collapsing on the ground where the rancher found her, she had walked for three miles after being set on fire. Um, she eventually succumbed to her injuries on June 28, 2016. That's awful. It's just heartbreaking. I could not imagine. And no one seen her walking those three miles? It didn't say. Was she alive when the rancher found her? Because for doctors to have evaluated her, she had to have been, right? She had to have been alive because it specifically states that she died on June 28th. You know, it's just, it's so heartbreaking to me that she fought so hard to live and still just couldn't make it. This happened to her over what? I don't understand how an argument, a simple argument could escalate to this point to you strangle somebody and you rip off their clothes, douse them in gasoline and set them on fire. I I don't understand why it would go to that level. You have to be a really messed up person to even think that way. Were they um, arrested? Were they arrested and charged? Yes. During sentencing, Roiland's mother, Ernestine Pretty Weasel, told the court, quote, I wanted what was done to her to be done to you. She left behind six children. The oldest at the time was 14 and the baby was only four years old. So Angelica was sentenced to 40 years in prison with five years of supervised release, while Demarzio was sentenced to 100 years in prison. And then his brother that was there was sentenced to nine years in prison with three years supervised release. This is probably the most or the longest sentences we've seen for any of these cases, but it's also really horrific. Since the deaths of Hannah and Roiland, thousands of Native American women have perished or disappeared. And we we know that the statistics are staggering and that Native American women are murdered than 10 times above the national average. Approximately 75% of the crimes investigated in Indian country involve homicide, rape, violent assaults, or child abuse, according to the FBI. I was looking on the web earlier. It's a survival story. And I don't know if you want to add this in there, Mm -hmm. but I'll read it. And it's from her perspective. But I'm going to read a passage that Danielle Jack had wrote about Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Day. And it's her survival Mm -hmm. story. This is what she wrote. This tore my heart out. I cried laying in this ditch as it brought back memories. Let me take you back with me and I'll tell you the story of Danielle. Danielle was walking home past dark from playing basketball with her friends at a nearby school just down the road from her home. A car pulled up beside her blaring loud music. It wasn't long before she was thrown into the back of the car, two men in the back and one driver. She was beaten and stripped of her clothing. She was forced to give all three men oral sex and laughed when she puked as they finished inside her mouth. 
The more she cried, the more they liked it. She was brutally raped by all three men and sodomized by a Budweiser beer bottle. Oh, my God. The beatings were becoming more aggressive as time went on, so she was going in and out of consciousness. Her heart sank as they drove by her own house. She could see her mother in the window, knowing she was preparing dinner, knowing she wasn't going to see her family again. As she was unconscious, they laughed and thought she was dead. High fives all around as they yelled, quote, effing squaw. So they stopped on the side of the road and threw her out. She laid there in a ditch, naked, bleeding, bruised, pretending to be dead. She knew if they thought she was alive, who knows what would have happened. They laughed once more, lit their cigarettes, and urinated on her dead body. Oh, my God. Cranky music, and off they went. She lay there broken and tore up from inside and just wanting her mom, but no one came. She walked home naked, blood running down her legs. And that's my story of my first survival of missing murdered Indigenous women. She was 12. <gasps> oh, my God. That is so hard to even process. That's a lot, yes, for a 12-year-old. And... Of anybody, any age. Oh, my God. But she went back to that ditch. And I can share with you the story, the pictures. And it's a picture of her as an adult now. Do we know what happened to the men that did this to her? It's just her story. It's just what she wrote. I haven't looked into it yet. It's just something I came across today. I don't I don't even have words for that. These these stories are just, just horrific, horrific. And that these are grown-ass people doing this to a 12-year-old or to anybody. My God. Yesterday in our presentation, part of what we included in there was kind of why Native women aren't important to society. And we talked about the hypersexualization of Indigenous women and how through colonization, Native women were devalued by non-Native people. And that's still relevant. And in this story, it's, I mean, this is a 12-year-old girl that they obviously thought was just a derogatory term, a squall, and wasn't a real person or wasn't important enough to at least give any sort of respect to. Again, what kind of person are you that you seek out a 12-year-old to do these things to? But that's the thing is like so many people don't see Native people as important or as, you know, a part of society. I don't even know how to explain it. And it goes, it's the same for a lot of minorities. And it feels like that's still kind of the narrative today for Native American people. And it's just hard to understand. That, that made me, that made my stomach churn. It gives you chills. It really does. Because I just to, just the thought and, you know, kind of went off what Maggie's saying about the kind of the way that we're viewed. And it is a battle that we're facing because we're, we're less than 2% of the population. And the fact that Indigenous women have been sexualized and been treated this way since colonization, you know, when does it stop? I don't have any words. I don't have any words for what happened to Roiland or to Hannah or any of these cases that we've covered. It's just, I am incredibly angry. Systemic racism basically means that certain groups of people visualize white people as superior. Right. And we, in uh, one of the stories that we had covered one time, that's what the statistics said is that when a non-Indigenous person goes missing, they're an upstanding citizen, you know, please be on the lookout for this person. She's a mother, all these things about them. But when it's an Indigenous person, a lot of times the headlines and the news stories don't come out until after they've been found or they're portrayed in a light that's not so upstanding. 
in the community. The thing too is that, you know, we always talk about how these cases, if there's poverty or substance abuse or mental health disorders at play, that it can really be detrimental to their cases because it's always just written off as like, oh, well, they've done this before. They have substance abuse issues. You know, they don't think it's important. But people don't realize that the reason that Native American communities, you know, suffer higher rates of substance abuse, violence, domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, all of that goes back to colonization and assimilation. And people don't understand the trauma that comes with that and that it's longstanding today. People need to know that these things are happening. These things have happened and continue to happen. It's just got to stop. Well, I just think too, it's important to know that, you know, this did happen to a 12 year old. We have a case in our community that happened to an eight month old where violence was involved. And what people need to realize, I think, is that the MMIW movement isn't just around adult Native women. It's the hatred and the violence against all Native women. And that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people don't really realize. That's true. Yeah. And according to her, looking at her Facebook page, but that was her first time. So she's been a victim twice. She's still, um, she's still an advocate. She's a grown woman now. So she is a survivor. I'm going to end today with a quote from Hannah's mother, Melinda, who said, as a mother, nothing will replace the loss of my daughter. But by organizing to support the National Day of Awareness and creating the changes needed, I know it will help others. And Hannah and so many others will not be forgotten. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com. <laughs>